First Peter chapter 1. So we're going to camp out this morning. Philosophy is a subject that gets a pretty bad rap in our society. We think of philosophers as people who argue about absolutely meaningless questions. I mean, the famous example is how many angels can dance on the head of a needle. <clears throat> or maybe, maybe as we think of more modern philosophy, we, we think of people who are busy wrangling complicated explanations for how to how to explain things like meaning in life or the existence of the world, the existence of humanity, not taking into account the presence and reality of God. Is that what philosophy should be about? The term philosophy is simply a compound word of two Greek words, phila, love, and sophia, wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. Philosophy at its best is simply the pursuit of wisdom. And this is something which Christians absolutely should not just be okay with. We should care about it and and love that pursuit. The entire point of the book of Proverbs is, and really even the whole scriptures at some level, is to instruct us in the wisdom of God. So we can appreciate that, classically at least, one of the chief concerns of philosophy is this question. What is the good life? What is the good life? In in answer to that question, Aristotle, one of the most famous philosophers, put forward a series of virtues. Wisdom, prudence, justice, fortitude, courage, liberality, magnificence, magnanimity, and temperance. But as admirable as those traits may be, they're not what we're talking about this morning. The Christian tradition was happy to embrace those things as taught by the Greek philosophers and then adjust them to make them more in line with Jewish wisdom and then Christian wisdom following that. But the Christian tradition also added to that list the the three so-called theological virtues. You might be familiar with them. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul says that these three virtues stand at the center and foundation of the Christian life. And while he says that the greatest is love, which echoes Jesus' words that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I think we can argue, though, that that while love may be the greatest, true Christian love is not possible apart from both hope and faith. Faith is the means through which we receive God's gracious gift of salvation. Without trusting that Christ is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he has done for us, we can't truly love him. Likewise, if we don't hope in him rightly, if we don't look forward to the eternal promises he has given and eagerly anticipate receiving their fulfillment, we're not loving him the way that we're meant to love him. So we can distinguish between the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. But if we're thinking biblically, we can't separate them. Not if we're we're going to be biblical. Faith, hope, and love abide together. So why focus specifically on hope? I said last week we're going to spend roughly-ish about five weeks focusing on hope. Two reasons to focus specifically on hope. Number one, I think... Of these three virtues, 
Hope is perhaps the one we talk the least about. Faith gets a lot of play in Christian circles because, as we've already mentioned, it's the conduit through which the life-giving water of God's grace and forgiveness flows to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So Paul says in Ephesians 2. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible to please God. And then love, again, it's the greatest of all. Jesus told us so, and he's quoting the law when he says this. This is not new information. God has always made it clear that love is at the core of how he wants us to relate to him and how he wants us to relate to one another. So while we can't overemphasize faith or love, we can sometimes focus on them without speaking of this third or thinking of this third virtue of hope. And hope, like the other two, like both faith and love, suffers in our society from having the word watered down to the point where it seems almost meaningless. We speak of hope as if it's some sort of wispy wish, rather than the firm conviction of the future fulfillment of God's promises. So, as Christians, we need to give the word its biblical content back. We need to define hope biblically. So we might call this like the mind piece. The, we, we need to get our heads straight when it comes to hope. Second, and this is a lot more subjective, but we're going to focus on hope for the reason I mentioned last week. I've been deeply convicted over the last several months that I need to be more hopeful. I, I need to be more confident in God's power and purpose, not just for myself, but for our church and our community and the world. And since I do most of the preaching, <laughs> what's on my mind goes into the sermon. <clears throat> and I'm trusting that as, as I work through this subject and try to get my heart and my mind aligned with the Lord's, that he will work to shape all of our hearts and minds as we lean into what his word teaches us about hope. So the first place that we're going to stop, the first place we're going to look is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just quickly give you some of the context of these verses. They're at the very front end of this letter that the Apostle Peter has written to, verse 1, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is a, a series of regions in what was then known as Asia Minor. It's in the, geographically the region that it's now the, the country of Turkey. And in that first verse and the next, Peter jumps right into high-level theology. He, he wants to give his readers an explanation of who they truly are. They are God's elect exiles. Verse 2, they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And then he blesses them. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He wants his readers to know that God has known them before the foundation of the world. He set them apart and made them holy by his own Holy Spirit and brought them to obedience to Christ and salvation to be 
sprinkled or covered with his blood. Their, their sins have been forgiven because they've been covered in the blood of Jesus. And what Peter's doing when he's saying this, and he's laying all this out on the very front part of his letter, he's, he's trying to give them an identity to help them see who they are. They are children of the Trinitarian God who loves them, made them, and saved them. And he turns in verses 3 through 9 and writes some of the most, to my mind, beautiful words in the New Testament. And not to mention some of the most theologically and practically rich. Again, as we, we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love all pop up in these verses. And, and also a, a good section on joy there in 3 through 9. If I, if I were coming to this text without an agenda, <laughs> we could pretty easily spend a month here just talking about all he has to talk about. But I do have an agenda. I, w- I want to know what Peter has to say about hope. And so in this text, specifically verses 3 through 5, we're going to learn four characteristics of hope. First is the cause of our hope. And the cause of our hope is that we have been born again. That See that? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. <clears throat> this is what, to again borrow some philosophical language, is what we might call the immediate cause. The thing that immediately brings us hope is, is the fact that we have been born again. When you were an unbeliever, you were, Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, without hope and without God in the world. To be an unbeliever is to have no hope as God defines that word. The only way to have true hope, biblical hope, is to be born again. We need to be born again because biblical hope, as we'll discuss shortly, has specific content. And that content is totally unrecognizable to the natural man, to the the person who has not been born again. So Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even perceive God's kingdom, his working, his person, his attributes. You can't see them clearly for what they are without being born again. So we, we cannot see that which forms and shapes our hope if we don't first have the new birth. What does that phrase mean? What does it mean to be born again? When Jesus is talking about that with Nicodemus in chapter 3, Nicodemus is left scratching his head. He says, you know, like, I don't know that my mom's going to be crazy about me trying to crawl back in so that I could crawl back out. <laughs> Jesus Jesus is clear, though, that that the physical birth is not what he's talking about here. We don't, we don't need a second physical birth. He's not saying something that ridiculous or impossible. And he's also not talking about any kind of human activity. It's not baptism. It's not a prayer. There is no human action at work in this moment. Jesus says in John 3 that the new birth is from above. Uh, that, that phrase, born again, in John chapter 3, could also be translated born from above. It's, it's kind of an ambiguous Greek term. It means both things, new birth and birth from above, which means that God is the initiator, which lines up precisely what, with what we hear, see here in 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, he, that is God the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So we see in this phrase the absolute sovereign goodness of God in salvation. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. There's nothing in us, nothing native to us, that would force God to love us. There's no outside force, something outside of him, constraining him, making him love us. It's simply his own free mercy, his sovereign love, that is the root cause of our salvation. The immediate cause, the thing that we experience that enables us to hope, is this gift of new life. But that new life didn't just pop out of nowhere. It's a gift from a loving and merciful God. Thus, we can also say that God's mercy is the cause of our hope. He is the ultimate source, the one from whom all blessings flow. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of variation due to change, is what James 1.17 says. And this birth from above truly does impart new life to us. If anyone's been born again, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. If we have been born again, we have a new self, a self that's able to see and perceive spiritual things, a self that's been born with a nature that came from above, a self that of its very essence should be hopeful. See that in our text? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Some people are born to poverty. Others are born to wealth. Some people are born to city life. Others are born to rural life. Some people are born in America. Other people are born in South Africa. These things pertaining to our first birth, our natural birth, are things that we don't have any control over, right? You don't get to choose when and where you're born. But they have a profound effect upon us. We are shaped by those things that we are born to. Likewise, our new birth brings us into a country and an inheritance that we didn't choose. but instead has been chosen for us by God. And that land is the land of living hope. If you are a Christian, you did not cause this by your own power. Now, to be sure, you made a choice. You are making a choice to follow Jesus. He commands us to leave whatever we must to follow him. But you didn't muster up the power or the wisdom to do that on your own. You were able to follow because he first gave you the gift of new life through the new birth. So the cause of our hope is God and his gracious gift of new life. But what does this new life look like? What does this hope look like? The nature of our hope is that it is alive. It is a living hope. As I mentioned earlier, hope is a word that in our society has suffered a severe watering down. Have we been born again to wishful thinking? Is that what it means to be born again to a living hope? Not according to Peter. Peter calls our hope living. And our hope is not, it's not like pagan hope. It's not hoping against hope. Our hope lives. Why does our hope live? Because our hope is in a living Savior. He caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You realize that on the cross, Jesus was not just atoning for your sins. He was certainly doing that. He was being made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But he was also purchasing a people for himself, paying a ransom price 
And the acceptance of that ransom price is validated by his resurrection from the dead. Our hope, our resurrection, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, our life is entirely dependent upon the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The, the content of our hope, as we will see, it, it remains in the future. We haven't got all of it yet. That It's as yet unseen. But the basis of our hope is alive. Jesus is the one who has made us alive because he rose victorious from the grave. And we can have hope then in his resurrection power. That's why any description of Christianity as merely a myth or useful ideas or an inspiring story falls completely flat. If it's simply inspiring or enlightening without being literally true, then there's no actual value at all. Why face the troubles that Peter talks about in verses 6 and 7 for a nice fable? I, I love the stories of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. I, I, I get deep and genuine benefit from them for my life. I guarantee you I would never suffer for them, <laughs> not for a minute. Why suffer for Jesus' sake? Because he's alive. And in his life, I am given hope for those things which he promises to those who trust and follow him. So because Jesus is our life, our hope is in the present tense. Our hope is a living hope, which brings us to the content of our hope, which is our inheritance. 1 Peter 1 verse 4 calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That part of the sentence is, to use very technical terms, chock full of good stuff. Notice that our hope is described in this sentence in the terms of an inheritance. And again, what do you do to earn an inheritance? Nothing. You're simply given to given that inheritance based upon the fact that you are part of the family, especially in Jesus' day. You know, now we've got wills and we can write people in and out if we want to. But in those days, the person who was in line for this got it, period, full stop. Well, when you come into God's family through the new birth, you are given this immeasurably valuable inheritance about which we can note at least two aspects. First, nothing in this world can touch it. Nothing can touch this hope. He used, Peter uses three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And they each have a slightly different nuance. Imperishable speaks to the fact that it's impervious to rot and decay. It's never going to get stinky or rotten or moldy on us. It's always going to be good. Our inheritance in Christ never breaks down because Jesus' resurrection life never breaks down. It's undefiled, which points to the continuing purity of this hope. Our inheritance in Christ is of surpassing worth. Sometimes we get, especially as like conservative evangelical Christians, we get squeamish about talking about Christ's benefits. Don't we want to just love Jesus for Jesus? Sure, of course we do. But we want to love him for who he is. And who he is, is the one who gave up his life so that we could spend an eternity of bodily resurrection joy with him. So why would we not then look forward to that? That's not impure. It's not selfish. 
It's undefiled. Hope in Christ is not selfish because finding our ultimate satisfaction in him is what we were made for. And this inheritance will never fade. Unfading brings to mind like paintings or pictures that fade over time, right? The the ink wears out, sunlight and time cause decay. We sing in Amazing Grace that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. But if we've got an idea that this thing kind of fades over time, 10,000 days and we're not close to done yet, that could sound pretty awful, right? If it's going to get less and less valuable to us over time. But our inheritance will never fade. It will never lose its luster. This is because we won't be floating around on a cloud with a harp like in the cartoons. We'll be enjoying bodily, resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth. And it will be better than the best parts of this life. But it will not be wholly different. There will still be an earth for which human beings, bearers of God's image, are responsible, will be called lords, kings, and queens over that earth. We'll have an eternity of joyful work and activity in front of us without the spoiling effects of the curse and sin. Second, our inheritance, it says, is kept in heaven, kept in heaven for you, which means we can't see it now. If it's kept there in heaven. Paul notes this difficulty in Romans 8, verses 22 to 25. Romans 8, beginning in verse 22, says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait patiently because that which we hope for, our ultimate salvation, is kept by God out of our sight. It's stored up for us. But one day it is going to be revealed The New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, says Christ's bride will descend, as pictured in Revelation 21, and the dwelling place of God will be with man. So the the fact that the content of our hope, this salvation being stored up and prepared for us, think John 14, 3, Jesus says, I go away to prepare a place for you. The, The fact that we can't see that right now bothers us sometimes. How can we keep hoping for the things that we don't see? And and Peter says, this is the place of faith. God guards us until that day with his power through our faith. He exercises his power in keeping our hearts trusting him until we go to be with him in death or until Jesus returns. Our ability to patiently endure in faith is itself a gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should start boasting. Fourth aspect of our hope is the response of hope. How does hope respond to God? It says, bless the Lord. Peter began this paragraph by exhorting his audience to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In his commentary, Calvin notes that even in this description of God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see the kindness of God towards us. The Father has sent the Son into history, taking on flesh as Jesus of Nazareth to be our substitute and our mediator. The Old Testament showed God's love. The Old Testament spoke of God's love, his kindness in dealing with his people. But we could never have known the true extent of God's love without the Father sending the Son, who is the exact representation of his nature. And he came and he stood in our place. He paid for our sins. And it is through Jesus, God the Son, whom we have hope. And so we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's merciful, because he has planned and affected our salvation, and he currently guards us and keeps us and will one day bring us to his side where he has stored up pleasures forevermore. This is our hope. It is a hope that nothing in this world can steal or destroy. No circumstance can alter it. If you know Jesus, you have everything you need to remain hopeful in every circumstance that this life can throw at you. Do you know this hope? Or are you blown to and fro by every article that you read in the paper or online or every interaction that you have at work that doesn't go well or hard day with the kids? Lift up your eyes. Our hope and therefore our joy is not to be centered on the fleeting circumstances of this life, but on that which is firmly fixed in the heavens. And if you don't know Jesus, you won't know this hope. You're still dead in your trespasses, your sins. You're a slave to this fleeting life. So you need to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, his work on the cross, whereby he atoned for your sin by paying the penalty that was due to you and trust in his victorious resurrection in your place. <clears throat> Repent of your sins and follow him. If you've done that, if that's you, then this hope is yours. It is your inheritance. It has been given to you by God. We just sometimes have to open up our eyes and see it. Eternal and sure hope is your inheritance as God's child. So brothers and sisters, let us lift up our eyes unto the hills. Where does our help and our hope come from? comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Would you pray with me? Father God, we ask for your help. We are not naturally hopeful, but in Christ we have every reason to hope, both for now and for eternity. As we turn now in song, would you fill us brimful with your joy as we sing to you and as we hear each other's voices singing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Bless the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.